Tuesday, October 31st. Welcome inside a darkened, moody <laughs> Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg, and the lights fit the occasion. <laughs> Coming up this hour, some spooky segments for Halloween. We'll hear from legendary film composer James Newton Howard. He scored so many films, including quite a few, with famed horror director M. Night Shyamalan. His new album has some familiar music from some of our absolute favorite scary movies. Also, local author Jennifer Green is here to talk about her latest book, which digs up some haunted history in our region. Her collection of gruesome true stories is called Dark History of Penn's Woods, Part 2, Unusual Deaths, Crimes, and Hauntings in Southeastern Pennsylvania. And we want to hear your scary stories. Email us, studio2 at whyy.org. Are we really going to read someone's whole scary story on the air? I guess if it's really good. We'll shorten it, y'all. We'll shorten it. (laughs) Or you can also call with your shortened version of that story, 888-477-9499. And later in this segment, by the way, WHYY's Peter Crimmins will join us to talk about the new Harriet Tubman statue in Center City. But first, Cherry, Mm. some sports news. Early this morning, it was reported by several outlets that now former Sixer James Harden has been traded to the Los Angeles Clippers. He had been asking for a trade for a long, long time. He was not happy here, Cherry. And um, so he has now had his request met. In exchange, the Sixers received four players, including, I should mention, North Philadelphia native Marcus Morris. Welcome back to Philadelphia, Marcus Morris. Mm. Um, And a few draft picks as well. Cherry, usually when we do sports stuff, you kind of just gloss right over it. But mm-hmm. you actually have thoughts about James Harden, which I was a little surprised by. Go ahead. My thought, good riddance. Good riddance. You didn't good like riddance. James Harden. The bearded guard. He was no. a great player. No, not and for I, you. And I say this with all due respect to Mr. Harden. He's a Devo. You know, he came here. <laughs> Philadelphia showed him love. Uh-huh. You remember all of those those billboards with the bearded one yeah, when yeah. he came in? And he didn't deliver. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like he delivered. He was a Devo. No, he played with his ego first. Watching him play when he was the mm-hmm. main guy was amazing. But then when Joel Embiid played, he never showed up. Mm. And so I say bye-bye. And this is why Philly fans make people prove themselves before they show love. Because here they gave love first. And now they're left empty-handed. So... Avi, don't that's lecture like, me because like, I am hating today. I'll love again tomorrow, but <laughs> bye bye, James. That Harden. was like a, a treatise. Well done. Um, I'll just say, as a as a uh, degenerate Sixers fan, <laughs> that you know it is nice to have it over because people have been talking mm-hmm. about a potential trade for a long time. And one of the joys of being a sports fan is yeah. just opening a new door and seeing what's behind it. So we'll see what's behind this door. At some point, they're going to move probably some of these players and draft picks for another star player um, and the wheel will keep on turning and until then we'll just be buying tickets and popcorn but what I will say is I will never forget James Harden's cookie monster suit that he wore last season <laughs> we did talk about that we did talk about, I will never forget you have that to listen so to the podcast. thank you for that James Harden um, much more on. serious topic now <laughs> very Bye, serious James Harden. story okay. um, the nearly three year long feud between the city of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania's Department of Human Services about the conditions in a local juvenile detention center now continues in court. Yep. New photos were released by the city of Philadelphia. They show children sleeping on floors and benches in crowded, filthy rooms. 
In the complaint filed by the city, lawyers asked the judge to hold the state in contempt of court for failing to address the crisis of overcrowding inside of the West Philadelphia Juvenile Jail. Now, advocates say that lights are kept on, Avi, 24 hours a day, that the kids have um, limited access to bathrooms and showers, and that this facility is licensed to hold about 184 juveniles, but currently it holds well over 200 200. young people. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, let me emphasize something Mm -hmm. you said. This is a city facility. Yeah. The city released these photos, put these into the record in court. So that's usually, you know, when you hear about something like this, you know, someone has uncovered, Mm -hmm. you know, bad conditions in a juvenile detention center or or an adult prison. This is the city saying, look at what we are doing here. We do not have the capacity to to care for um, these young people. And this is supposed to be a holding facility yes. as the yes. as the young people transition to some permanent placement. State facility, yeah. And so they're just not doing it fast enough. They're not yeah. doing it fast enough. There also is a, an additional complication, mm-hmm. which is that in the past, there were many private facilities in which these children were placed. Many of those have closed because yeah. of various problems, abuse investigations and the like. And this is a constant tension in this space. People, uh, there are, this this task is outsourced to private facilities Mm -hmm. and then there are scandals and those facilities close and then it goes back to the state and then the state's not doing a great job and it just seems like there hasn't been some way to figure this out this has been a thorny issue forever and i should mention that a lot of these kids are kept in these detention facilities holding facilities and they don't get the time credit so when they're moved to the state facility they get no credit and they can spend up to six months in these facilities so imagine then you have to fulfill your full so it actually tax additional time onto any sentence so this i mean but i should mention that there are reforms currently pending right now a bill uh in the pennsylvania house that would change the kind of requirements for detention so and it has the political will i mean that's um, part of the equation too right that is like what are the 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 barriers that a, a case has to meet before you actually transfer a student into yes. the system or a young person into the mm-hmm. system. And if you can change that, then you can also change the equation here. Yeah. So it's, it's multifaceted and it's um, it's just it's bubbling over right now for many reasons, staffing shortages and facility shortages. So and it's, much. A, it's a bad situation. And um, yeah, so we'll be watching this story for Absolutely. sure. Um, of course, as many of you know, as we have alluded to, Mm-hmm. several times already on the show. It is <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> um, it's going to be cold tonight, passing along that message. So <laughs> whatever whatever your costume is, just make sure maybe it involves a, a coat. Some long um, johns. Yeah, some long johns. Uh, we are passing along this information mm-hmm. from candystore.com, a reputable source. Um, these are the most popular <laughs> candies in each state. Pennsylvania, the most popular candy cherry is the Hershey's Mini Bar. In Ooh. Delaware, it's Sour Patch Kids. In New Jersey, it's Tootsie Pops. I can't believe that's actually true. And then nationwide, it is the Reese's Cup, which does make quite a bit of sense to me. Yeah, and I got to mention, WHYY took a little straw poll, and um, the Reese's Cup, third straight year, took the top honor right here. So it's I my think, number one. Yeah, I love a Reese's Cup, man. Nothing like it. Reese's Cup. Well, that's what I called it growing <laughs> up. Reese's Cup. Reese's Cups. Um, <laughs> is that your favorite? That is one of my favorites, but I am a Sour Patch Kids person. Oh, commit so. to one. It's, it's Sour Patch for you. Um, I'm I'm just can I have more than one, please? Well, I got to mix it up. But no, I, I would vote for the Reese's. Got the Reese's. Cup. Reese's Cup. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm giving you a hard time. I don't know why. <laughs> um, um, well, I'm going to give you a hard time now. Yeah. Are you afraid of clowns? Obviously? A little bit. I'm a little afraid of clowns. Yeah. Well, a new study suggests that 
you are not alone. And there may be a reason why some of us find clowns to be creepier than others. Mm -hmm. About 5% of the people in the U.S., they're afraid or very afraid of clowns. I'm not very afraid. Can I just put that in the record? I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, you're just afraid. Yeah. So, and But none of this comes from a scary personal experience. Um, and uh, most people say it's because you can never really know what a clown is thinking. Yes. You can't read their facial expressions. Yes, I agree with I that. I will tell you this. I don't like clowns, man. I, <laughs> if one popped up, I might pop it. Oh my gosh. No, we <laughs> I do might, not advocate violence on this show. I'm joking. I'm, jo- I'm totally joking. <laughs> clowns, but no, this is a safe space for They clowns. say clowns are unpredictable, but clowns, you uh-huh. know, a lot of kids, they, yeah. they, a lot of kids love them. Their, their goal is to bring joy. So I'm joking. This is a real study, by the way, from the University of South totally Wales joking, that, that <laughs> we clarify, definitely joking. Um, <laughs> the team at the University of South Wales did like survey people about their fear of their phobia of clowns yeah. and found some of these patterns. And I do think the idea that you don't know what a clown is thinking does make a lot of sense because heavy makeup obscures facial expression. And by the way, in defense of clowns, John Davidson, who's been performing as a clown for almost 40 years, told the Washington Post that clowns are, quote, helpless, vulnerable, and actually don't have a clue about how the world works. And they're just trying to make their audience laugh. Okay. So there you go. Shout out clowns. <laughs> um, transitioning now to our newsmaker interview yesterday. The city of Philadelphia announced the winning design and artist for the Harriet Tubman statue that will soon sit outside City Hall. The winning artist is Alvin Pettit, selected from five finalists for his statue titled, quote, A Higher Power, The Call of a Freedom Fighter. It shows Tubman as a military commander, union spy and soldier with her Mm. hands clasped in prayer. WHYY arts and culture reporter Peter Crimmins joins us now to talk about the selection process, the finalists, and this monument to Tubman. Peter, welcome to Studio Two. And pleased to be here. We're happy to have you, Peter. So a design of Harriet Tubman has been submitted by sculptor Alvin Pettit. It's been selected Mm -hmm. to move forward. So who is Pettit and describe this design? Pettit, uh, based, he's a Jersey City-based artist. He grew up in Baltimore, hmm. as I, I met, so he tells me I met him yesterday. Um, he's a, a sculptor and painter. Um, he submitted his works uh, as part of a year-long process. Yeah. It, it was sort of a, conv- it, it was not convoluted, it, wasn't, it was a controversial process yeah. because of the way it started. You might remember there had been a Harriet Tubman statue placed on outside City Hall already last year. It was like a touring exhibition. It was a touring. Yeah. Um, it was by a guy named Wesley Wolford, and he designed it to move. So far, it's been in 18 cities yeah. since he yeah. built it three, four years ago. Um, and early 2022, so almost two years ago, it, it appeared, and it was really well received. The mayor loved it. The mayor could see it from his office window. He could see that other people liked it. And yeah, it was a lovely statue. It was statue. nice. Yeah. It was a lovely A lot statue. of people liked yeah. it. Um, and so he said, okay, let's, we can't have this one because it's a touring statue. He's, the artist isn't going to give it to us. But let's ask him to make us another one that, that we can call our own. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, they offered him the commission and he took it. And then everyone said, and then other people pushed back and said, no, 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 you, this is basically a no-bid contract. You didn't send it. Mm. A call, a call mm-hmm. for proposals, and also Wesley Wolford. Well, some people pointed out is a white artist, mm-hmm. and if we're going to have what is the first historical black woman statue, a statue of an historically black woman, not mm-hmm. a, a mythical or yeah. uh, allegorical black woman, um, it we should at least let a black artist 
be Applied, considered. Yeah. Yeah. And so they canceled that commission with with mm. uh, Woford, and they started this process, this public process of receiving submissions. And so it's it's been a it's been a sort of a, a long, long back and forth. Yeah. And this is the culmination. And this is the culmination. They have finally decided. This is the one that we're going to put there, uh, and, and they presented a basically an eight inch, eight, about eighteen inches tall. It's called yeah. a maquette. It, it's yeah. just sort of a, a small version of what the larger one is going to be, which is going to be about fifteen feet high. And I want to play a clip here of the artist Alvin Pettit mm-hmm. um, talking about the the statue itself. Let's hear that. Perhaps she is calling upon her faith, or experiencing an episode of one of her prophetic visions. Or maybe she is preparing for another battle, since at a closer observation, her hands are actually in a clutch fist position. So talk about what it looks like. It, yeah. it's, it sounds like it um, shows her sort of in a fierce pose in some ways, a prayerful pose. She's very pose. focused. She's yeah. in a very focused pose. Yeah. Um, her hands are sort of balled in a fist, collapsed at her chest, and her head is bowed into her hands, hmm. which suggests she may be in prayer. The the artist kind of t- changes it up. He, he lets you... She could be... She had been known to have visions, mm-hmm. um, maybe hallucinogenic visions. It's, it's hard to determine. She had some kind of visions. Maybe she's in the throes of that. Maybe she's just focusing herself for a military raid. Yeah. She is armed. She is a heavily armed figure. Yes. She's got a rif- rifle on her back. She has a pistol in her waist. She has a scabbard, uh, sword and scabbard. Wow. And she did actually lead a military charge in 1863 in South Carolina, the, uh, the raid on Combahee Ferry, in which she led 150 black Union soldiers to free about 750 enslaved persons wow. and to waiting Union ships. So she was a military strategist. And so this is the moment yeah. that the artist was thinking um, to, to present her. It's in contrast to the previous statue that had already been mm-hmm. there where she is leading children, what appears to be in flight yeah. from their enslavers. Yeah, it's a very different vision. Very different. And this vision. is a broader vision because she was also a spy during the Civil War. I mean, Harriet Tubman had so many different roles, and this right. sort of expounds that. Tell us what's the timeline. When can we see this? Uh, well, it's, as I said, it's right now it's just a maquette. It's an 18-inch clay yeah. figure. It's going to take a long time to get it, you know, to, to create the thing. They say roughly 2025 is where it's when it's going to actually land back on in, outside City Hall. And quick follow-up, this seems to be part of uh, Mayor Kenny's legacy. <laughs> Mayor Kenny likes his statues. <laughs> yeah. he, uh, he, before he was mayor, when he was still on city council, he started the process of creating the Octavius Caddo statue, yep. which is now on the south apron of City Hall. Um, he's also spearheaded the Marian Anderson statue, he's, which is not, doesn't exist yet. And he's also the Julian Abel statue, which doesn't exist yet. Interesting. And I'll, uh, as a tease, if you go read Peter's work on this, you mm-hmm. can see why Tubman's likeness here is maybe based on a painting of George Washington. Very you can check that story out at WHYY.org. Peter, thanks for being with us. Pleasure, pleasure. That is WHYY's Peter Crimmins talk, coming up, talking a little more history, some darker history, coming up on Studio 2. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I was not aware they were going to play this I did music. not know that either. You, this song, by the way, legitimately scared you as a it child. It scared me as a kid. Yes. Okay, who are we? <laughs> uh, welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman-Erin. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, 
I know you're a super history geek. A little bit, yeah. But did you know much about the darker histories of southeastern Pennsylvania? I, I do know some of the stories, but a lot of them in the book we're about to talk about, I did not know. Like, for one of the ones I did know mm-hmm. uh, was about Philadelphia's Lazaretto, which was a, a quarantine hospital on the edge of the city. And we had an interview about it actually recently on yep, Studio I remember too. that. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of stuff I don't know in this new collection of several dark and gruesome stories from the Delaware Valley. Yes, the book is called Dark History of Penn's Woods, Part 2, Unusual Deaths, Crimes, and Hauntings in Southeastern Pennsylvania. It is a collection of tragic and sometimes scary stories that happen in our neck of the woods from an explosion in Chester County to ballerinas catching fire under unsafe working conditions. And then, of course, the boy in the box. This book, as alluded to in the title, is the second volume of Jennifer Green's Dark History of Penn's Woods. And she joins us today to talk about the stories that keep her and us up at night. Jen, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. So um, I want to just dive right into one of the stories. Um, and it's about, it's, it, you, you title the chapter Bonfire of the Ballet Girls. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think, indicative of, of what happens in a lot of these stories is that people um, who die or who are the victims are vulnerable or marginalized in some ways. And this story is about ballerinas, but you wouldn't think today that those people would be sort of living on the margins of society, but they were at the time of this tragedy. So, so tell us first a little bit about what it was like to be a ballet girl in the 19th century. So in the 19th century, ballet really changed from what it was in the 1800s in the or the 1700s. It was very much a, a hobby or an entertainment for the upper classes. And then in the 19th century, it really started to commercialize and yeah. it became um, it became more of like a factory system. So as the the ballets got harder and the the feats that the ballerinas were attempting to perform got harder, they started recruiting ballerinas younger and younger and younger, starting at four years old or five years old. And they were pulling these ballerinas from the lower classes. Mm. So they were bringing them up from the lower classes. They were forcing them into this kind of factory system where they were were exploited um, both physically and economically. Yeah. And, and, and it really left them in a place of not having any kind of uh, authority over the course of their own lives. They were really at the mercy of wealthy patrons and the ballet itself. And that leads us into a great tragedy that happens here in Philadelphia uh, at the Continental Theater, right? Yes. So tell us about that theater and, and what happened. So the Continental Theater, it had recently been completely overhauled, and it was one of the many theaters in Philadelphia. And I want to back up a little bit because the Chestnut Street Theater was one of the first theaters in the the country to have gaslighting. So I mentioned that because gaslighting plays into this quite a lot. And and we're talking about literal gas-powered lights here, folks, not the term we use today, gaslighting. Correct, yes. Um, So... At the Continental Theater, 1861, they had overhauled this theater to really kind of bring in a whole new family demographic of of entertainment goers. And as part of this, William Wheatley, who was in charge of the theater, he brought in four ballerinas from overseas, from England. And they were the Gale sisters, and they were really famous. So this was kind of part of his all-star blockbuster um, reimagining of The Tempest, Mm. Shakespeare's The Tempest. And there were total probably 28 different ballet dancers involved in this production. Mm -hmm. 
So um, ballet was a huge part, it was very popular, and almost every production featured ballet in some fashion. Now, these ballerinas were wearing tutus that were made of bobinette, which is an open weave cotton fabric, which is also extraordinarily flammable. And there were safer options for Mm -hmm. these ballerinas to wear, um, but you could coat them with a variety of different substances, but coating them rendered them kind of dull, dingy, and stiff. And these ballerinas relied on the support of wealthy patrons and on the ballet and the operas and the, the venues themselves. They were incentivized to wear a dress that made them, it sexualized them in some way. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It sexualized them and it also endangered them because they could wear the safer tutus, but they didn't because they were supposed to be ethereal, yeah. white kind of uh, nymphs and fairies and creatures like that. And so one of these uh, catches fire, right? One of these dresses catches fire. What happens after that? Uh, Yeah, so the Gale sisters were up in their dressing room. Actually, all 28 ballet dancers were in their dressing room. And one of the Gale sisters, we're never quite sure who it was, reached up to to grab a costume because there was a costume change. And it brushed against one of those gas jets, caught fire, and her sisters ran to help her. And in that process, they also caught fire. So the fire just spread from tutu to tutu wow. through all four Gale sisters and then through the rest of the company. So all of the ballerinas in that dressing room are wearing this incredibly flammable fabric. So it just passed from person to person. And of the 28 ballerinas, 15 injured, nine mm-hmm. died. Nine died, yes. Um, there were other options even to protect, to keep this these gas lights from, why weren't some of the other protections that were available installed at this theater? So William Wheatley, the Continental Theater, actually did install a lot of safety features like hydrants and things like that, but they were installed on the stage. This happened in the dressing Mm -hmm. room. So it wasn't thought, and these gas jets were five feet off the ground. So William Wheatley thought at the time that it was safe enough, but as you know, as was obviously proven by this incident, uh, it was not. And he very quickly after the incident installed wire covers over these gas jets so that it wouldn't happen again. And the the other thing that struck me about this story was the limited options for treating burns. Yes. And a lot of these folk, they died in excruciating pain. Yes, there were very few medical options. This is before antibiotics are available. And your skin is your primary barrier to infection. So if your skin is compromised and Mm. your immune system's compromised, your body is then kind of vulnerable to any bacteria that comes along. And before the sterilization of medical equipment, there was bacteria everywhere in these hospitals they were being treated at. We take so much for granted right now when I was reading this story. uh, By the way, Thomas Dent Luter... Uh, mm-hmm. makes a cameo right in this story. Maybe we'll save that for the folks that read <laughs> yes, the book. Yes, yes, but, yes. But no he's spoilers. an important figure in sort of trying to advance the science exactly. around burn yes, treatment. Exactly, yes. Very important figure in burn treatment. Uh, Cherry, another story. Yes. Let's bounce around. Yeah. Let's bounce around a little bit. One of the stories that you talked about was an axe murderer. <laughs> <laughs> a mass murder um, that took place right here in Chester County mm-hmm. involving um, a family with the last name, I think Zeus, Zeus? It's Zeus, Saus, Soas, Zeus, depending on what newspaper you're reading. Tell us a little bit about that story. So this is one of my favorite stories that I researched because this is the perfect example of 
um, people that you would know nothing about that would never appear in the historical record because they were poor and this was an immigrant family. So the Seuss family came over in around 1907 from Hungary and it was um, a mother, father, and three children. And they settled in a teeny tiny village called Byers mm -hmm. in Chester County. So if you're familiar with Exton, it's that kind of area. And they worked in the graphite mines. And one day, John, the father, came home and he found his entire family slaughtered, either with an axe or a hatchet. And they never did identify the culprit. Um, John was arrested on other charges, but the the amazing thing about this story is the investigation was was intense and it was covered. Every minute of it was covered by the local newspapers. So I know from these newspapers what their living room looked like, mm. what their personalities were like, where the kids went to school, what bank they had their money at, what church they worshipped at. All of this information we would never have had this tragedy not occurred. Right, and you mentioned the alternate spellings, which is, I think, evidence of the fact that these people lived on the margins of society. Often people didn't know much about them, even the spellings of mm -hmm. their name or how it was pronounced. And yet when something horrific happens to them, that's when some light is shed on their life. And there's another story in here about, I think, a sort of similar theme um, about this this life insurance poison ring mm -hmm. in South Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you want to tell that whole story right now, but it's again, it's about an immigrant uh, immigrants, Italian immigrants living in South Philadelphia, Great Depression. And you do get this window into their lives through the tragedy. I mean, that mm -hmm. that must be part of what intrigues you about the research here in these stories. Oh, absolutely. And and a huge part of it, especially with that story in particular, is that I got the chance to peek into the lives of over 30 individuals. Wow. This arsenic poison ring ultimately kind of pinpointed over 30 people, people that were involved in this widespread kind of pyramid scheme of life insurance fraud. Yeah. So they would take out these life insurance policies and then they would poison these people, sometimes with the knowledge of their spouses, sometimes yeah. without. And maybe a hundred people died in yes. that poisoning ring. It's one of the wilder stories, yeah. One of the things that stuck with me is the way the journalists would cover the folks who are mentioned in some of these stories. I mean, there was one quote, um, and, and the journalists seem to discriminate a certain, against certain groups. One quote is, Chester County is getting a reputation for its many murders, as there have been a dozen homicides within the county in as many years. Most of the crimes have been committed by aliens and Negroes who came from the South. Yes. It's sort of like marginalized and said, oh, the crime is happening in these communities. You researched using a lot of newspaper articles, something I know Avi yeah. loves going through old crates. What did you find when you saw even the coverage of how um, these these types of communities were looked at? So it depended heavily on what newspaper you were looking at. So there were certain newspapers in Phoenixville, for example, mm -hmm. that, that were read by the immigrant population. So their perspective was very different. And then you get to um, you get to different newspapers and they're describing this this particular murder as, you know, uh, I think the, the original title was a murder among Polanders. And he was from oh. Hungary, not yeah. Poland, but it didn't seem to matter. And just in the very title, it's saying that this family must have been murdered by other immigrants, by other foreigners. They couldn't have been murdered by somebody who is, you know, white and native born. 
And that's a theme you get, especially from 1890 through the 1930s, 1940s, is this kind of um, hesitancy to to even consider the idea that a horrible crime could have been committed by a white person or a native-born person or even a woman. Yeah. They mm-hmm. had a very definitive idea about who murderers were and what they looked like. With about five minutes left, I want to make sure we talk yes. about a, a case that a lot of people mm-hmm. know, but what you write about in here really reveals the layers to it, which is the boy in the box case. Yes. Um, first of all, remind folks about the boy in the box um, and also what sort of lessons you think that case provides for us today. So the boy in the box, the short story is in 1957, the body of a small boy was discovered murdered in the Fox Chase section of Philadelphia. And the police launched this massive, detailed investigation that lasted over 60 years. Mm. This was constantly Mm. in the news, constantly being investigated. There was always a detective assigned to this case. And for 60 years, over 60 years, they weren't able to identify who this boy was. And that all changed in 2022 when they were able to use forensic genealogy to match him to his uh, maternal line of his family. Mm. And they were able to identify him and give him a name. But I was amazed at the, the depth and the breadth of this investigation, how long it lasted, when five years after he was found, another small girl was found. Mm-hmm. She was about the same age, um, but she was found in different circumstances, and she was black instead of white. And the entirety of that investigation, it was given about four paragraphs in the local newspaper, and that was it. And we still do not know. And yeah. we still don't know because yeah. they've actually lost her. Mm-hmm. Her remains are not in the potter's field where she's supposed to be. So we have no hope of matching her. That was fascinating to me. And so many kids, so many people went unclaimed and unidentified and could you talk about what it was like? Because it was there were so many expenses tied to identification and claiming a particular body that there were just so many people who just ended up in these potter's mm-hmm. graves. Yeah, so you, the two ways that you can end up in a potter's grave is if your your remains are not claimed or your remains are unidentified. And theoretically, unclaimed remains will be kept for a short time and then they'll be cremated. But unidentified remains are supposed to be buried, not cremated, so that we can use DNA technology to identify them in the future. And I think one of the most startling things that I learned in researching this particular chapter is how many unclaimed and unidentified remains we still have. Mm. And it can cost thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 to do this forensic genealogy for everyone. And some people just don't get the same treatment that the boy in the box, Joseph Augustus Zarelli, did get. Yeah. I mean, you, you're right in the book. The number of people who remain mm-hmm. unclaimed is shockingly high and has been rising exponentially over the past few years. Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about the past, but when it comes to unidentified and unclaimed remains, that is very much a topic and an issue of the present. Where does this head from here? Can we expect those numbers to come down? Or or what is the city and what are authorities trying to do to ameliorate this? So the one thing I learned um, when I started going into this was I talked to county coroners, so Montgomery County, Chester County coroners, and the biggest problem is the expense of final expenses. So you have a lot of unclaimed individuals because their families can't afford their final expenses. Mm -hmm. So it ends up being funded by the county 
And the county has a lot of restrictions on what it's able to do um, financially, uh, space-wise, um, you know, bureaucracy. So it's it's a real struggle to give these these individuals the respectful end that they deserve, that everyone deserves. And I di- I didn't yeah. even know that there's this it Potter's Field in yeah. Northeast Philadelphia mm-hmm. where they where they buried people mm-hmm. until the 80s, 1980s. And now um, unclaimed remains are, are cremated and interned at Laurel Hill in northwest Philly. I didn't even know yeah. that. And it's a, it sort of was shocking to me how mm-hmm. little I knew about how yeah, the how dead treat- are treated here in Philadelphia. Yeah. I mean, yeah. did you know all this? Was this new to you? Or It was new to me. I mean, yeah. I knew that there were potter's fields. I knew that they were unclaimed. But I don't think I realized that first, Philadelphia has over 200 unidentified remains in custody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the difficulty, like in Chester County, when they inter remains, they've actually run out of space in Mm. Chester County. So now they have to buy more vault space, which has to be allocated in the county budget. And it's a a whole process. It's the bureaucracy of death. I mean, it's really, it's morbidly fascinating and it's incredibly sad. Yeah. I I, want to zoom out a a bit. We only have about a minute left, but this is part two. Um, of mm-hmm. your book, what was your intention? What do you hope people take away from this? So with part two, what I was really trying to to emphasize is that these stories transcend. Humans are humans no matter what year you're in. Things, Bad things will always happen. They ha- they're happening now. They happened 200 years ago. And a lot of the same themes, the same feelings, the same emotions, yeah. you know, humans humans experience all of those same things no matter what year it is. Mm. That's a wonderful note to end on. Uh, Thank you, Jennifer Green. Jennifer Green is an author and commissioning editor for Brookline Books. Her book, Dark History of Penn's Woods, Part 2, Unusual Deaths, Crimes, and Hauntings in Southeastern Pennsylvania is out now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. And coming up next, music from some of our favorite M. Night Shyamalan thrillers. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. <laughs> do I have to do that voice? I'm Avi Wolfman-Erit. <laughs> and the eerie music you're hearing right now is part of the film score for the 2008 thriller, The Happening. That music is from Academy Award-nominated composer James Newton Howard. Trust me, you have heard his work mm-hmm. somehow, some way. He has scored over 140 films. For the purposes of this segment, and for our own curiosity here... Of those 148 were by the legendary Philly director M. Night Shyamalan. And on a new album titled Night After Night, Howard explores the music from some of those films. And I had to start by asking him about one of my personal favorites, The Sixth Sense. I won't give away the twist at the end, but the film's young main character, Cole, is a troubled and lonely boy. And Howard's score really captures that. The first thing I... I wrote was this sad kind of odd meter piano solo that just as soon as I saw him walk out of the door during winter 
10-year-old boy wrapped up in a peacoat and just kind of hurrying off to school, it, it just read sadness to me. thing about Sixth Sense that I think is sometimes misunderstood, it's far from a horror movie. It's not a horror movie at all. I mean, there are scary moments in it, but um, I think it has a very strong emotional heart. How did you accomplish that melancholy sound? because you can feel it when you listen to that music and almost see it in your mind. Well, I'm flattered, thank you. Um, you know, I, I accomplish it the same way I, I always accomplish uh, the score to a movie, which is I react to what I'm seeing and uh, music comes out. Doesn't always come out easily, but eventually it does through immersion in the film. We only had six weeks to do The Sixth Sense. It was my first movie with Night. We had met a restaurant in Santa Monica and immediately hit it off strong. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think, uh, I, think I, f I just feel it very strongly. And fortunately, most of the time, something comes out. Sometimes it's way wrong, but sometimes it's not. I want to ask about when it's way wrong, because you have to have some sort of language to communicate with a director. And not every director is going to be a music virtuoso. They're going to give you some emotional cues, I'm imagining, and you mm -hmm. have to translate that into a musical composition. So how do you develop that language, that trust with a director? That's a good question, and I think that's a big part of the job. It's an incredibly collaborative job, and it's not always easy to get started. Most directors do not have the musical language, which is fine. They can express themselves in colors or in moods. That is really helpful. And then I just kind of, I, I make demos, very, very convincing sounding mock-ups, like an architectural demo of a house. And I'll bring the director over to my studio and play the demo in the movie. And that's more often than not extremely successful. And I've always said to young composers, in order for you to succeed as a film composer, you must feel sorry for the director, which is, <laughs> which is what I believe, because the dire directing a movie can be a horrible job, because you've made a movie, it didn't go as well as you were hoping, um, you're running out of money, the poor director comes in looking for some kind of comfort and encouragement, and the music often can create a degree of that. So yeah, I'm, maybe not feel sorry, but I'm very sympathetic. And I, I want to talk about your process for creating the score. You have to create different moods based on the scene. Do you work on a track individually or do you see it as one, one big song? How do you view it? Yeah, we call them cues, right? So a mm. cue can be anywhere from 30 seconds to 10 minutes, you know. So we refer to, oh, that cue when he falls off the horse. And, you know, we know that what that means. First of all, I don't see it as a whole thing at all. What I'm trying to do in the beginning is attach myself to the particular tone of a movie because every movie is different. If I've done 10 westerns, each one of them has a completely different tone. That's the hard part to find. Since I started working with Knight, actually, I write quite a bit of music before he has shot the film, just based on our conversations, based on the script, 
And it's very liberating because I just come up with thoughts and just start writing stuff. And a lot of times what I write ends up in the movie. Sometimes none of it does, but most often if I write a lengthy suite of music, seven, eight minutes long, a portion of that will end up in the movie. Then once I get the movie, I will often start with one of the most difficult moments, like a scent, the, the middle of the movie, where there's a you know 10-minute montage where so much is revealed about characters and so much subcurrent, uh, undercurrent, different kind of subtexts are being displayed. And if I take a large piece like that and it starts to work, then I can derive from that perhaps the beginning of a theme. Like, oh, that part in that long 10-minute cue, that, that might be able to be developed a little more and turn into a theme. And I read, James, that Knight really likes a repeating motif. And I'm curious what that does for a film, because on one level, I think it's nice to have those cues, but you don't want to cue people in a way that reveals too much about what's mm-hmm. going to happen in the mm-hmm. plot. So what's what's the, the upside of repeating motif, and where do you have to be careful with repetition? Well, you know, after we did The Sixth Sense, it was nominated for a couple of Academy Awards. I, I wasn't one of them, and Knight called me and said, uh, James, the reason you weren't nominated which was a little forward of him, but I love Knight, and it was okay, um, <laughs> was because there, was no, there were no singular moments in the score where you could identify a few notes as being, ah, that's from The Sixth Sense. And I, I understand that. I mean, I suppose the ultimate example of that is Jaws. Dun, 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 dun. You know that's Jaws. So he said on the next one, which is Unbreakable, what I'd love you to do is just start sending me ideas, short motifs. literally 10 seconds, 20 seconds long. And he was very excited about one. And that became the main theme in the movie. And I used it throughout the movie, along with other themes that develop. But as long as this one motif in all kinds of iterations could be reorchestrated, could be uh, played fast, could be played slow, as long as he heard that as milestones throughout the whole score, we were good. And that worked really well in that movie, and it really, really worked in a movie called Signs. Can I ask about that, uh, actually? That is, yes. So there's a, there's, a, there's a track on the album called Hand of Fate from the movie Signs, uh, where you really hear that ba-da-dump, ba-da-dump. That it's like a percussive piano thing, and then at the end it kind of becomes a percussive string thing. And you can tell I'm really great with my music terminology, thing. James. But um, <laughs> I, I was curious about what you think that emotes when you hear that ba-da-da, ba-da-da, ba-da-da over and over again. Well, in the opening of the movie, over the credits, it's portrayed, it starts off as kind of a thriller. You know, sort of doing what, you know, a Hitchcock movie would be. It was doing some kind of repetitive, up high, in a high register, um, not particularly pleasant sounding, and very powerful. Most of the time, it was quite haunting and and eerie and sometimes scary. And then as the movie became clearly quite an emotional, with high emotional impact, 
I realized that as long as I was doing those three notes, I could add whatever harmonies I wanted. And Knight was happy because he kept hearing enough of that main idea and I could deviate from them occasionally as long as he kept hearing that idea. I want to ask you, how did you choose the what selections for this compilation in Night After Night? Well, I felt that at some point it haunted me, you know, the idea, hmm, I wonder if there's any way of exploring these pieces because I always felt that there were ideas I did not get to flesh out because of the narrative. You know, you can be doing a lovely theme, carries people through the country and they get out of the car and all of a sudden they get hit by a car. And so you can't finish that idea. You know, it's a line that you're pursuing. But So I thought I would do, I would just examine what I'd done and I found that there were plenty of things I could develop further. So I took a lot of parts, obviously, from the score, some more of the score than others, and added quite a bit of additional material to achieve that. And I just think, if I do say so, I just thought it was a tremendously successful idea. Yeah. Well, I'll say this, and I don't know if this counts as success, but I was listening to it on my walk into work, and at one point I was convinced someone was following me. <laughs> 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 Uh, they weren't. Don't worry. I'm fine. But I, I, we are talking to you during the, the Halloween season. A lot of people are watching suspenseful movies, scary movies. And of course, listening to this made me think about like what makes a piece of music suspenseful? Mm. And is that a moving target? Because if you use the same motifs over and over again and they become too predictable, then you might lose some of the suspense. Well, oftentimes I find that composers will either be bereft of an idea and just hold a note, and that I really object to, but there's a lot of that in film scoring these days, or they'll overwrite it. And when it's overwritten, it obviously is telling us too, too much about what's going to happen. So I think I'm sort of giving an overall sense of what the feeling be, that has potential to get scary. I don't like to write specifically scary music or I don't like to write funny music, but I try and create an environment that you feel at any moment it could get scary. And to some extent, uh, low notes really work and that, that's why they're a convention because they work. And high notes really work, but I always try and keep something a little more substantive in the middle. Your first film was 1985, Head Office, and you fell in love with scoring films. You have about 140, and they range from Pretty Woman to Space Jam to Hunger Games and many others. What do you love about scoring a film, and what makes you say, you know what, this is a film that I want to be a part of? Well, what makes me like it is I think it's pretty much the only thing I can do uh, <laughs> that I'm at all good at. I can't say I knew how to do it early on, but I, I was never at a loss for ideas from the very beginning, and I just tried things. And they were successful enough for me to keep getting other movies offered to me. You know, but it's funny, you one identifies oneself, you can get 
pigeonholed very easily. After Pretty Woman, I was the rom-com guy. And then <laughs> after... The, after you broke out of that pretty well. <laughs> yeah, you did. And then after The Fugitive, I was the action guy. And then after Dave, I was back to being kind of the rom-com guy. And then The Hunger Games and some of the big action things started to happen. And I like to have a great musical opportunity. That's what really interests me. You know, if I read something and say, wow... Um, have a conversation with a director and we're really getting along with one another, that, that is exciting for me. I have to feel like the script is really good. Obviously, I've worked with a lot of famous actors, but I've also worked with actors who surprised had no idea who they were and they became incredibly important to me in the movie. But sometimes you have a perfect script, a great director, wonderful actors, and the movie just doesn't work. I've been lucky and unlucky in terms of the ones I've picked. But I say mostly lucky. What do you hope people take from night after night when they listen, when they sit or whatever they're doing and they listen to night after night? Well, I guess my fantasy is that the album, for the most part, has can be quite meditative. And I hope it gives people an opportunity to be. This is really asking a lot and. I don't mean to sound arrogant, but allows them to be transported for a while and away from their the, the, the present moment, which these days the present moment is somewhat scary. Um, that's my hope. Now, um, yeah, you just said that you felt like somebody was following you, so that's definitely not calming. But um, <laughs> That was just one of the tracks. It was just one of the there. tracks. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's in there in a few places, no doubt. So, um, but that's what I hope, you know, I hope that it's a musical experience and that is intriguing, that they like it. That's what I really hope. And that was the legendary James Newton Howard music and film composer. His new album is Night After Night. That was a cool discussion. Very cool. By the way, if you enjoyed the discussion with Jennifer Green, author of Dark History of Penn's Woods, Part 2, she will be giving tours at the Chester County History Center in Westchester both tonight and all week. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Debbie Builder, Paige Marie Bessler, and Andreas Gobes. Al Banks is our engineer from Studio 2. WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. And we are closing with After You Were Born, composed by James Newton Howard from the movie Signs. <laughs>